You know, we got a little bit of a we got a, a little bit of everything today. A smorgasbord of of topics for you. We've got a little anti-Semitism. We've got protests in Washington D.C. Donald Trump's in court today. We've got a new uh, a member of the uh, GOP entering the Senate race. A lot, lot to do today. It, it's going to be jam-packed. And I want to start with with Donald Trump. So Donald Trump's in court today testifying for his New York civil fraud trial. It just is a little bit of background. New York Attorney General Letitia James filed a $250 million lawsuit last year, accusing the president, his associates, the Trump Organization, of committing financial fraud over the course of a decade, like inflating the valuation of a number of Trump properties. Now, the former president sparred with the judge, Arthur Engeron, uh, during his testimony, after reports said that Trump was making off-topic comments about the hearing prompting the judge to remind him, quote, this is not a political rally and recommending to Trump's legal team, quote, maybe you need to have a talk with him right now. Then when Trump was allegedly not answering questions from the prosecutors, the judge said again to Trump's lawyers, that was a simple yes or no answer. And I beseech you to control him. Now, here was a, a an interesting back and forth that I wanted to, to give you. Donald Trump said his financial statements would always hold up in court, quote, except maybe in this court because of disclaimers that are always added to his statements. Kevin Wallace with the New York Attorney General's office asked Trump if he was aware of any other properties on the financial statements from 2011 to 2017 that were overstated. Trump said, quote, I don't know of any. But not that would but not that would have a material effect. Anything that would be a little bit off would be non-material. Then the former president went on to point out the disclaimers on the financial document, saying that they always hold up in court, except maybe in this court. They always hold up in court. Always. It's a disclaimer. Donald Trump said, I don't know why that was so funny to me, but Donald Trump is doing everything in his power, everything in his power to win the court of public opinion here. Every, everything in his power. Now, Trump is the third member of his family. Don Jr., Eric Trump have also testified in this case last week. Ivanka is expected to testify uh, this week as well. So we'll keep eyes on it. And and we'll get more uh, tomorrow as this thing wraps up. Um, But very interesting, none the least. Meanwhile, speaking of Donald Trump, According to a new New York Times Siena poll, Trump would easily beat President Joe Biden with over 300 electoral votes if the election were held today. Now, the new poll focused on swing states and shows that Trump is leading Biden in five of six swing states, including Nevada, Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. What do those have in common? They all went blue to Joe Biden in 2020. So here's the the question. This is an unenviable position for Democrats to be in. If President Biden doesn't have the support. And look, these are polls. They're subjective. But but uh, play along with me. If he doesn't have the support, does he elect not to run? Does he run and get beat? Does he hope Trump goes to jail or prison and runs against Ron DeSantis? 
If he decides not to run, here's the here's the real part in all of this. If he decides not to run, Democrats are going to need to mobilize. They're going to need to give a candidate time. And you have to find an attractive candidate, whether that's Ron DeSantis, whether that's Governor Gretchen Whitmer, whomever it is. But you got to give them time to assemble a competitive campaign. So you got to give them as much runway as possible. We're, we're at the year mark. So what, what, if they go down that route, what does that mean for the president's remaining time in office? That he's not running because he's either unfit or not popular enough? Does that does that make him, I guess, in a less literal sense, a lame duck president? I, I think it is a very interesting look and, again, a very unenviable position for the Democrats to be in. Because that would be a, a pretty remarkable admission that not only is this guy not the guy, but now we have to scramble to find the guy to replace the guy. And that is very difficult for the Democrats to be in. A very difficult position. But we'll continue to to, to watch this story as we get closer and closer to 2024. In the meantime, we've got this story about Rashida Tlaib is unbelievable. And now you've got those who have at one time or another come to Rashida Tlaib's aid. But whether it's Alyssa Slotkin, uh, whether it's uh, Dana Nessel, the attorney general, all are coming now to not defend Rashida Tlaib but almost voice their displeasure with some of the rhetoric she has been posting, some of the things that she has been saying, whether it's through statements or videos on X. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up at 235, but we saw um, an incredibly hostile protest, pro-Palestine protest in Washington, D.C. The White House front gates were defaced. There were red blood, uh, uh, red handprints uh, stamped on the front gates of of the White House, uh, things written, and none of those things have been cleaned up. And and I think that there are some real concerns as we move forward, especially to the rhetoric that, that's being put out there. Uh, in the meantime, there's a shortage of paramedics, and we've talked about the shortages in, in the education field or in the medical field. Well, now paramedics around the state, um, despite the state stepping in and providing grants for training, we're still seeing a shortage. WJR senior news analyst Marie Osborne says ambulance services make about a million runs a year in Michigan. And due to the demand for EMTs and paramedics, some patients are being left for transport. And that is not a good position to be in. Good afternoon, Marie. No, Chris, this is not a good position to be in. And this is something we first reported on during the pandemic. At the, at the time, the state initiated a grant program to help train more paramedics. So far, about $8 million have been awarded to help about 400 students to pay for tuition. Overall, about $30 million will be spent to help this problem. But the Michigan Health Council estimates the state still will need about 6,000 new par- paramedics and EMTs through the year 2030. And even though the numbers have increased recently, it's estimated the state still needs between five. 500 and a thousand workers right now. The cost for getting a paramedic license can run as much as $10,000. Paramedics earn more money than EMTs. EMTs average just about $14 an hour. Paramedics earn an average of about $22 an hour, according to Michigan's Health Council. 
Now, medical first responders are trained in first aid as well as CPR. The next level is the emergency medical technician. They can do those things plus a few other um, things, including uh, medications, too. And above that, the license uh, is known that as an EMT specialist. Paramedics, though, are the highest level. They have uh, more authority to provide medications. They do advanced pr- procedures like they intubate patients who've a blo- who have blocked airways. So that's a much higher skill set. Chris, experts say in order to help boost the ranks of EMTs and paramedics, more people need to know that there are tuition reimbursement options now available. So we're about 6,000 short across the state. Is that the number you said, Uh, 6,000? Between 500 and 1,000 workers right now. That's how how we are short that right now. And in places like in the Upper Peninsula or in big rural areas, it's really painful that uh, they don't really have enough. So at they're all. feeling it worse than we are here yeah. in the in the suburbs or in the city, right? And when mm. you're talking about leaving patients waiting for transport, you know, not of course there's always the nine one one emergency, and yeah. that's when you think of the paramedic and so on. But how, how many times? Uh, People in nursing homes need to be transported sure. to the hospital. Sure. They may not need an emergency type right. move, but they do need to be moved safely. And the only way to do that is with a an EMT or a paramedic. Well, and if you're going through something that's more immediate, right? right. If you're going through a cardiac event, or if you're if you're if you you know if you're el- elderly and you fall, I mean, right. all of those cases. Right. Are are they need to be addressed because you have to be able to respond to calls like that. It's troubling. Um, but you you mentioned tuition reimbursement in a lot of those cases. It's something that that does need to be put out there more. In a, in hopes of drawing more talent to that right. field. I've also heard that they are making a more concerted effort to get veterans involved in mm-hmm. this because veterans also, you know, already have that sense Certain of level community of training and, and, yeah. some, and service. Mm-hmm. So they may be natural fits for this kind of work as well. Interesting. Marie Osborne, thank you very much. Thank you. Got to take a break. We've got somebody else throwing their hat into the ring for this oh, soon-to-be vacant U.S. Senate seat. We'll talk to them next here on JR Afternoon. Well, it's getting crowded in this run for U.S. Senate, specifically on the Republican side. And now we get news that former West Michigan congressman and veteran Peter Meyer is throwing his hat into the ring. And he joins us this afternoon on JR Afternoon. Uh, Peter, good to have you, first of all. Thank you for having me on. Uh, crowded or maybe sporty? Okay, there, a, however, another. absolutely. How did you get to this decision? Uh, you know, Chris, I'm not the type of guy who's comfortable sitting on the sidelines. Um, that, that's always been a, a challenge for me. Um, and you know, honestly, looking at the direction the things are going, and not feeling like there are folks who are out there who are outlining a positive vision for how we make sure that by 2050 we're in the middle of the second great American century. Uh, I thought it was important to be able to get out there, to express my views, uh, to share, I mean, frankly, all of the things that I saw that were wrong in D.C. and the ways that our, the voting public is unable to actually influence how the government is formed, uh, but also to outline how we can fix that. You know, I remember uh, when you lost your primary, um, you joined me and we had a very frank conversation. And, and you know, the Republican Party seems to have shifted uh, at least in in some cases, in some parts of the country, certainly here in Michigan, uh, we we've seen it. Um, what what is it about the Republican Party and and uh, the conservatives that 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 you even align with 
um, why get back into the fray? Why is it that that you want to face this uphill climb yet again? I mean, I think it's important on the Republican side of the aisle that we have all folks rowing in the same direction. There's some people that are just far more comfortable attacking people they agree with 99% of the time than saying, hey, you know, we have disagreements, but disagreements can be a marker of a healthy organization. Uh, and let's focus on where we can work together. I mean, that was something that Ronald Reagan said all the time. If you agree with me 80% of the time, you know, you're my ally and friend, right? The problem is if we let those disagreements trip into division, then we're paralyzed. And on the Republican side of the aisle, the only folks who are going to win a Republican civil war are going to be the Democrats. And if you're an American, if you're not a Republican, you say, oh, that's fantastic. Republicans are fighting each other. Well, guess what? If we have a two-party system, then you need each of those parties to be a check on the excesses of the other. And if either collapses, if either is asleep at the switch or not able to organize and do what it needs to do to put forward its agenda, then the entire country suffers. That was what I saw when I was in Congress, where you know President Biden had a 50-50 Senate. If there was one fewer senator, they wouldn't have a majority. Needed the vice president a tiebreaker. In the House, it was the slimmest House majority that either party had had since World War II. And yet they normalized crisis-level spending and put forward policies that we are still living with the ramifications of in terms of record high inflation. Right? There is no check on those excesses, right? We need our parties to be forcing the other uh, to discipline themselves. And we need to be in a situation where iron sharpens iron. I'm a Republican. I want the Republican Party to be strong. And frankly, I think it's important not only for the ability to advance conservative values and conservative principles and more importantly, conservative solutions, but also so that our system stays in its return to a point where it can be functional, healthy and, you know, solving the problems of the American people. You know, there have been a number of Republicans that have looked at the Michigan GOP and, and have questioned the direction of the, the state party. Uh, there was a post that the Michigan GOP uh, submitted that, that said Peter Meyer voted to impeach President Trump. Remember that they later retracted it and, and said that it was an intern's fault for for putting that out on social media. Do you see a path for Republicans in this state? Uh, common sense Republicans uh, to, yeah, I mean, to, to, to find these offices, these elected offices, uh, uh, aside from the, the Michigan GOP? Yeah. I mean, who amongst us hasn't fired off, you know, a heated tweet, you know, in a, in a rushed moment, right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm certainly guilty of that from time to time. You know, but when it comes to the party, I think one of our challenges is the more we have conversations on screens, you know, the easier it is to, to either not see the humanity in somebody or to just, you know, come from a position where we're we're doing more talking than we're listening. Right. I mean, all of us, we got one mouth. God gave us two ears. You know, we need to be writing that balance. Um, and I, frankly, that's why I'm excited to be in this campaign and going all around the state talking with folks. And, and some of those conversations are going to be heated. I'm sure there will be a lot of points of, of you know, known disagreement, uh, uh, unknown disagreement, known agreement and surprising agreement. But that's, I mean, frankly, what it's going to take to communicate and, and get over some of the sticking points that we've seen that just cause people to retreat to their corners. As opposed to saying, OK, I like this, don't like that, like this, don't like that. But having a fuller picture of what candidates have to offer. This seems to be a, a, a pretty um, treacherous time in, in American history, whether it's Russia, Ukraine uh, and now Hamas and Israel. Um, it, it feels like a potential uh, conflict uh, 
in in Taiwan exists and is very real. How do you use and tap into your military expertise as a way of navigating these these pretty rocky waters for the United States abroad? I mean, I'll say from the outset, I mean, yeah, we're juggling a bunch of live grenades and we can't afford to let them drop. All right. And and all it takes is for one thing to go wrong. And the, op- the potential for cataclysm, I think, should not be understated. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever been more concerned about where we are in terms of the the global uh, security threat environment and all of the ways that stuff could go rapidly out of control. You know, but that having been said, I think that's why it's important to, to communicate honestly with folks and help them understand the complexity behind some of these issues. No foreign policy issue is well served when, okay, well, uh, you know, you look at whatever the other side is doing and just say, let's do the opposite. I mean, that caused a lot of Democrats, because former President Trump was very tough on China, to become very sympathetic towards China, mm-hmm. right? All in that sort of reaction. I think we've seen, you know, the, the Russia-Ukraine crisis is incredibly complex. There's strong U.S. national security implications and concerns, but something that doesn't lend itself well to a black or white picture. Uh, and, and speaking of a place that isn't black and white, I mean, just the the tension in the Middle East right now. I, I mean, is I think, I mean, probably the, the on the verge of being more dangerous than it's been in 50 years. Right? These are times that call for folks who are, are a going to have some discipline and restraint to not make everything a partisan issue, but also try to educate and inform and share some of that complexity, because Lord knows, you know, the better un, the better the American people can understand the threats and the consequences we're facing, and the more we can move that from just a left versus right to recognizing there's some core, you know, shared American national security interests, you know, the better we'll be positioned to make sure that we a are not repeating mistakes, but Frankly, more importantly, that we're as as uh, putting ourselves on as sustainable and prudent a path as possible. You know, there have been uh, candidates and politicians around the country that have that have approached the Donald Trump subject uh, in different ways, and and there has been different, varying degrees of success along the way. But but I look at somebody almost like uh, Governor Glenn Youngkin out in in. In Virginia, where there was a, a willingness to adopt but not completely get on board the Donald Trump train, how in, how important is is the Donald Trump effect in these races like you'll be partaking in? Um, and then does he impact Republicans on the, the down ballot? You know, I think um, I mean, he certainly is a, a massive turnout driver. Um, and, you know, I, I frankly look at what how he ran his 2016 campaign in contrast to the traditional candidates, in contrast to everybody else who basically sounded the same, but maybe they tweaked a talking point here or there and offered something fresh and something unique. I, mean, I think now the funny part is you have an entire political establishment in the, on the Republican side that has oriented themselves, you know, not necessarily in support of him so much as in with a degree towards, you know, co-opting him uh, because they are so They lack so much confidence in their own message that they're just trying to, you know, keep their heads above water. And I think that is that is the wrong approach. That is just, you know, totally without conviction and without value. Um, I I don't view 
anything is an all or nothing. Like I, I love talking about all the places where Donald Trump's policies were resounding successes that I would like to see happen again. I've called him out, obviously, sure. you know, in places where I disagreed with him. Sure. Uh, but I've also spent probably even more time since I left office defending him in ways in which Democrats are attacking him in hypocritical and dangerous you know, ways to the country, such as trying to block him from even being on the ballot here in the state of Michigan. I think that's wrongheaded and risky, uh, and I stand against that. Uh, Congressman, former Congressman Peter Meyer joins us, throwing his hat into the ring for U.S. Senate, the soon to be vacant U.S. Senate seat here in the state of Michigan. Uh, good stuff. Look forward to talk with you again very soon as, as your campaign really gets firing on all cylinders. No, likewise, I appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Yep, you got it. That's Peter Meyer running for U.S. Senate here in the state of Michigan. Got to take a break. We're going to examine some of the comments made by Rashida Tlaib over the last couple of days next here on JR Afternoon. So on Friday, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib released a video on X, showed a crowd of people demonstrating in Michigan, and they were chanting something. They were chanting from the river to the sea, which refers to the area between the Jordan River on the east side of of Israel to the sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea on the west side of the country. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Now, there are those that are defending this type of statement, this saying, including Rashida Tlaib, who says this is an inspirational call for freedom, human rights, and peaceful coexistence, not death, destruction, or hate. Terror groups like Hamas use it very differently with a very indifferent interpretation. Rabbi Asher Lopatin is the executive director of the Jewish Community Relations Council and American Jewish Com- uh, Committee uh, and joins us. Rabbi, uh, that, that is not the under- that's not the, the meaning I understand others to take on this on this uh, particular phrase. Yeah, it, you're right. And I think you're so accurate. And really, it's the destruction of the Jewish state. Um, it's to create a Palestinian state there. Originally, when the PLO originated this in the 1960s, they talked about it should be ethnic cleansing of Jews. So Jews should be kicked out of this area. But everyone, and even Rashida Tlaib, when she's saying it, is aspirational of having no more Jewish state, of destroying Israel, the state of Israel. And so this is seen by the Jewish community definitely as anti-Semitic because There's no other country that anyone is advocating destroying and demonizing and getting rid of except for the Jewish state, the one state for the Jewish people um, that has been a refuge for millions of Jews around the world. And that is what she is aspiring to eliminate. And it's at this time when we want to bring people together in Detroit, in Michigan, in America, and it's a time where everyone's hurting. I totally understand that. Um, not only the Jewish community is hurting from the, the murders of Hamas, 1400, and the prisoners that are still being held, but Palestinians, Arab Americans, Muslims are hurting from this, this terrible war, which is necessary to defeat Hamas, but innocent people are dying. So people are hurting, and now is a time for all the communities to come together and to talk about shared society and coexistence and how we care for each other, not to advocate destroying the state of Israel. 
there are a number of of high ranking Jewish uh, politicians, elected leaders, whether it's uh, Representative Alyssa Slotkin urging Rashida Tlaib to apologize and retract her her remarks. Attorney General Dana Nessel has come out mm-hmm. and said that that this language uh, ampl- uh, amplifies uh, an intense uh, situation. State Senator Jerry Moss has come mm-hmm. out and pushed back against this. Is there another way to look at it? Because I don't know how else to really classify it. When Rashida Tlaib uses phrase like the phrases like this, or uses words like um, like apartheid and oppression and blockades, it, it it doesn't really feel like when she says, "Well, this isn't an anti-Jewish thing." It really is hard to feel any other way. Exactly, it's it's demonizing the Jewish state. It's demonizing Israel by calling it apartheid, by singling it out. Uh, And, you know, I do agree that from um, the river to the sea, the land should be Hamas-free. So I could get behind (laughs) that phrase if she wants to change it a little bit. Um, And I think that would be the best thing for Palestinians. You know, that's the other very sad thing, that all this this divisiveness and this anti-Semitism and this hatred against the Jewish state, against Israel – that she and others are unfortunately spewing is doing nothing for the Palestinian people. They're really doing nothing for the future of the Palestinians in Gaza or elsewhere. Um, it's just um, really hurting the Jewish community and hurting the state that 90, well over 90 percent of the Jewish community across the country supports the state of Israel as a Jewish state. And she's just saying that um, they don't count. She's rejecting uh, the feelings, especially at this tender, tender time. Rabbi, I, I think I've tried on this show to make a concerted effort to separate Palestinians from Hamas because they are mm-hmm. not always mutually exclusive. I think there are Absolutely. many Palestinians that don't agree or don't share the viewpoints of of their government, Hamas. But at the end of the day, when uh, when leaders, elected leaders, are using this type of language, it, they're, they're, that line of delineation doesn't seem to exist. It is one grouping together, and I think that hurts the Palestinian cause as well when, when potentially innocent people are, are caught in the crossfire. Exactly, exactly, because there's no future for the Palestinians when they are controlled by Hamas, by a terrorist organization. It's just not – there's no future for them. To have a future for the Palestinian people, you have to – here at least in America, I mean I understand in Gaza it's dangerous. You'll be shot if you condemn Hamas. But here in America, uh, Representative Tony should be saying, I want to get – I want to end Hamas. I want to end the, the Hamas control, a tyrannical control over Gaza and over the people there. So definitely – we want to enable the Palestinian people to become the great people that they can be. And in order to do that, you, you right here, you have to make that distinction between a Hamas terrorist organization and innocent Palestinians who are just looking for a future, God willing, for peace and coexistence with the state of Israel, shared society. Rabbi Ashley Patton joins us. I, Rabbi, I... I I am a firm believer that people should have their own beliefs. And and I don't mm-hmm. know necessarily that people need to rely on people they see on television, whether it goes all the way to athletes or actors and actresses or politicians. I think people should be able to form their own thoughts. 
But is it a time for elected leaders to really step up here and provide some guidance and provide some leadership? Because it's obvious that people around the country, this knowing that this is a delicate, confusing situation for a lot of people that may not know the history. Is it is it important for people like Rashida Tlaib or other elected officials to really stand up and 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 condemn these types of of languages, uh, this type of language or just provide some sort of guidance for people to follow here? No, I think you make a very powerful point. Our elected officials, just like university presidents and administrators and principals and heads of schools, they have to step up. They can't just sort of be part of the crowd, part of the, the TikTok crowd, people that are influenced uh, you know, by an algorithm that confuses them, that doesn't give them the truth. Our elected officials really have to be moral leaders. And I know that we've become somewhat cynical, uh, but when it's on an issue this sensitive and this harmful to both the Jewish community, the state of Israel, and the Palestinians, yes, now is a time for a little bit of courage and a little bit of, of, of moral clarity to step up and say, I'm going to help provide a path forward and a path of sensitivity and care. And it's so disappointing when so many have told Representative Tlaib over the years and have spoken to her and, and Representative Slotkin talked about this. And, and so many have said, like, this is harmful and painful and hurtful and wrong and it just does not register. And I, I imagine she's hurting because she's Palestinian-American. And so, you know, there, there's room for sympathy. But at some point, you have to say, don't endanger the whole community. Don't spout angry, hateful rhetoric against the Jewish people by advocating for the elimination of the Jewish state. Rabbi Asher Lopatin joins us. We'll talk again very soon. Okay. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. Yeah, thank you, Rabbi. Asher Lopatin joins us. Uh, here on JR Afternoon. In the meantime, uh, a, a new trend, a troubling trend is going around involving teens and AI and potentially nude photographs making their circulations online. We'll talk about that next on JR Afternoon. You know, I think for all the the good that AI can do, there's always nefarious purposes for for AI, different AI, whether it's AI, AGI, or or even deepfakes, which we've talked about a boatload over the last couple of years. And, and deepfakes, particularly as it pertains to this 2024 presidential election that's coming up. I mean, you're going to have people that are going to see videos in social media that believe verbatim what these videos are saying. And in reality, the person may never have said them. It, it is going to be something that we're going to have to contend with and deal with going forward. But in a more immediate and even more nefarious manner, we are seeing deep fakes being used to exploit teenagers across the country in grade schools, sending out fake nude pictures of themselves. It is a troubling trend that has wide ranging ramifications for the, the rest of their lives in some cases. April Rubin is a breaking news reporter with Axios and joins us. Uh, April, good to have you. Hi, thank you for having me. How how widespread is this? So I think the experts are not quite sure how widespread it is, but what I can say is that anyone can access the technology to create a deepfake and to ask these AI platforms to, you know, create whatever type of content um, they are looking for. So 
instances like this have been seen before. Most recently, like you said, the incident occurred in a New Jersey high school where um, some of the girls found out that they had photos created of themselves that were circulated in group chats. Um, and there was another instance of this happening in Spain. But bigger picture than that, I, I am not exactly sure how widespread it is. But what's um, threatening about it is that it can be done by anyone of anyone because all it takes is one singular photo. So at this school in in New Jersey, what, what happened specifically? The incident happened over the summer, and it was raised to administrators late last month where um, some of the girls, it's unclear how many, uh, found out that some of the boys at the school were circulating fake nude images. So they were created. All it takes to, to have an image populated by AI is you input just one photo of a person and it can do it. So they found out that this was happening with them and it was being sent amongst group chats. Um, it's been escalated uh, to police reports in some of the instances, um, and the school has said that they're working on how to prevent this from happening mm. from here on out. You know, one of the, the, the things about AI that I, that I think most people are, are worried about is currently there really aren't any guardrails. Like AI technology and deepfake technology have, have a lot of abilities, and the, the creators of these programs, um, they haven't, really needed to abide by a wide ranging set of rules or standards or or laws for that matter it's something that the federal government is trying to correct what what type of guardrails are they trying to put in place i know the the president and his administration have been targeting uh, these these tech companies as a way to to try to find what guardrails they need in place what are they working on on the federal government perspective, I um, don't have the exact answer to that, but what I can say is that some of the experts I spoke with suggested that an important guardrail to put in place is, first of all, just to have to create an account to use some of these AI platforms. So, for example, I, you or I could access it without inputting our phone number or email or first name or anything like that. Um, however, if, you know, there's that added layer of authentication that gives this platform my phone number, my email address, just some identifying information about the user. Um, the expert's perspective is that this might discourage users from mm. actually, you know, going through and, and um, creating nefarious and, and explicit and exploitative content. Another thing that can be done is adding kind of a layer to social media platforms where if an image is shared, they have a detection software that can tell um, if it is AI generated, which is already in existence with some copyrighted content, but this would be taking it to the next level to determine, you know, if images are AI created before they're posted to social media. Yeah, almost like invisible watermarks. And and, and that's right. a, a, another tool that law enforcement, for example, is going to need. How are they approaching this? So it is hard to um, to respond to these instances with law enforcement um, because, again, it's hard to pinpoint who did what. The laws around it are um, pretty unclear, and so the lines of what is legal and what is not are a little bit unclear. There are some states where um, legislation has been passed. For example, uh, New York, where I am, is one of them. Um, 
where the governor signed a bill into law that makes it illegal to disseminate AI-generated explicit images of a person without their consent. Um, the penalty for that is a year in jail and a $1,000 fine. Um, but again, this is not widespread across the state. Each state is sure. figuring out kind of their own rules for this. Do, do, the, the experts that you've talked to, I've got just about a minute left here. The experts that you've spoken to, are, are they worried that the... The guardrails aren't there yet. Do they feel like there needs to be some sort of regulation in place? Yes, they are worried about that. And they think the regulation um, certainly needs to come from the political and the business side of things, because once users have access to these technologies, it's inevitable that they will use them for some negative purposes. So preventing that at the top from the top down is what they see as, as most important. Yeah, and there and there has been some movement in Washington D.C. on that, but I think as as more time goes along, states are going to really be be cornered into passing more legislation to try to regulate this, and then the federal government's going to have to tackle it uh, as well. Uh, April Rubin with Axios, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Likewise. Eight hundred eight five nine zero nine five seven. Still a lot to do today, and and I, you know, this particular issue is one that w- w- when you're dealing with you know, generated nude photos of teens, that's troubling in and of itself. And that is something that is going to need to be addressed because, again, we've talked a lot about the the, the impacts of social media on, on teens, whether it's teen girls or the, the, the depression that can get along with that. It, it is a troubling sense that really is not being tackled yet. But then you take that a step further and you've got presidential elections to worry about and general and and elections across the board. This could be a pretty nefarious technology that hasn't quite been put into perspective yet. Got to take a break. More next. All right. Welcome in three o'clock hour. Still a lot to do today. We're going to talk to Mike Rogers coming up at 318 because there is one senator on Capitol Hill that is blocking the appointment of a number of important military positions. And he's doing it because of abortion. We'll talk about it coming up with Mike Rogers at 318, because there, there has to be a way to address this issue. And as, as we are seeing more and more conflicts across the world pop up in Ukraine, now in, in Israel and in Gaza, and, and again, my assumption is eventually Taiwan, um, some of these positions are going to be very important to be filled and need to be filled and need to be filled now, especially as even more U.S. outposts in the Middle East have been attacked. So we'll talk to Mike Rogers uh, about that coming up. Also, uh, the UAW, with big wins over the big three, in my estimation, I mean big wins for the rank and file. I don't know that anybody really expected the automakers to come as far as they did on a number of issues, but they did. And the UAW got it done for their workforce. You got to give Sean Fain and company a a boatload of credit. But now with this momentum, the UAW certainly is going to try to build the union and build it back to levels of years past. And since we've seen a dwindling number of, of UAW members. But the UAW is going to try to to recruit more people to the union. Is that something that's even possible? 
are they going to be able to accomplish that? We'll talk with Merrick Masters coming up at 335. But Donald Trump in court today, he's testifying in his New York civil fraud trial. Letitia James, the attorney general of New York, filed a $250 million lawsuit last year accusing the president, the former president, his associates, the Trump organization, of committing financial fraud over the course of a decade, like inflating the valuation of a number of Trump properties. Now, Donald Trump sparred with the judge in the case, Arthur Engeron, over his testimony after Trump was reported saying things like, uh, this is a political uh, witch hunt, this is not a fair trial. Uh, the judge in the case said this is not a political rally and urged Trump's legal team to, quote, maybe you need to have a talk with him right now. Uh, he also said uh, that was a simple yes or no question referring to something that Donald Trump had responded to. And the judge in the case said, I beseech you to control him. Uh, some Some pretty heavy stuff in court. And certainly Donald Trump is going to try to Make this about the court of public opinion. Um, as a matter of fact, Matthew Schneider addressed this, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, now at Hahnemann Law, um, on All Talk today. He's probably determined that he's not going to win this case. The judge has already decided against him. There's nothing else that I can do other than argue to the public. And again, that that is something that Donald Trump is doing, not only because pretend potentially this case is 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 open and shut. The judge already made his determination on it, but there will be certainly be an appeal, and Donald Trump will try to build on his base because of this trial. So certainly, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And Don Jr., the pres, the former president's son, Eric Trump, also testifying this week, uh, or excuse me, last week. Ivanka Trump will testify this week as well. Uh, speaking of Donald Trump, according to a new New York Times Siena poll, Donald Trump would trounce Joe Biden if the election were today. Why? Because this poll looked at swing states. Donald Trump right now is beating Joe Biden in five important swing states, including Michigan, Nevada, Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin joining that list. All of those states, the president won in 2020. And and this is a tough spot for Democrats to be in. Because if Joe Biden doesn't run, it's an admission that he's not the guy. It's also an admission that you have to find a new candidate. Whether that's the Gavin Newsom's of the world, the Gretchen Whitmer's of the world, somebody who has elevated their status to a high enough level where they can go out, put together a competent campaign and try to pick up where where potentially Joe Biden left off. And and maybe you throw Kamala Harris into the mix. Although her numbers are worse than his. So it's a tough spot for the Democrats to be in. I don't know that Joe Biden can just throw in the towel. But it, th- there would be a lot of, of coming to Jesus moments for the Democrats if, if these numbers are to be believed in a poll. And again, it's just a poll. But there is something to be said about the way that Joe Biden is handling a lot of these issues. And and. Look, the Arab population, there's a new poll out that says Joe Biden is is losing a lot of of Arab support because he isn't calling for a flat out ceasefire in the Middle East. 
So, so Joe Biden is facing a number of difficult challenges on a number of different fronts. Would another candidate be able to pick up that slack? I'm not entirely sure. Meanwhile, most of us have been taught, you save your pennies. You, you save as much as you can over the course of, of your working life. And that's how you get to a good retirement. But Generation Z, Gen Z, has a much different approach like not saving money at all. <laughs> WJR Senior News Analyst Marie Osborne here to take a closer look at that. Hi, Marie. Yeah, shall we say Gen Zers are adopting a more relaxed approach to their financial security? It's called soft saving. And you can guess it's more about living in the moment instead of frantically saving so you can retire early. According to a study done by Intuit, these younger Americans, we're talking people ages 18 to 25, are more interested in experiences now and especially experiences that promote personal growth. And they report being far less interested in retiring early or ever for that matter. So what's behind this trend? What's really pushing it? And this might be the answer. About 75% of the Gen Zers that were surveyed say the economy makes them leery about setting up long-term financial goals. And many report they figure they'll never have enough money to retire anyway. So why try to save? The term FIRE, F-I-R-E, has taken off in recent years. It's financial independence, retire early, which pushes the idea that you aggressively save so you can reach financial freedom. But this study found that Gen Z Americans are not buying into that concept, mainly because it's harder for them to save because of the cost of living being so high. And, and again, that, was, that study was done by Bank of America. And a study by Bankrate, Chris, found that rather than cut expenses to boost savings, 73% of Gen Zers say they would rather have a better quality of life than extra money in the bank. And Gen Zers are the biggest cohort of non-savers. Mm. I mean, look, I think there's something to be, to be said about having those experiences earlier in life. Right. When maybe you don't necessarily have children or you don't have the mortgage or you don't have a lot of the responsibilities that you would have that come along with 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 a family. But also as you age <laughs> and I'm starting to feel it that as you age, things come up and, and maybe you'd like a little extra cushion in the bank. You'd like a little extra support in the event things really go south and you're not able to work anymore or you want to retire I, there is a certain yin, yin, yin and yang to all of this, but I, I think if you're able to stash a little away, that's always a good idea. Well, the experts here are saying, of course, you need to, you absolutely have to save for an emergency. Like, you know, that three to six month rule that, mm -hmm. you know, can you meet your expenses for that? So that that's a, a given for everybody. But this other thing about trying to save a lot of money for your retirement Gen Zers are just not having it. Um, they, I, I was shocked by the number 73% say mm -hmm. they'd rather have, you know, better quality of life now than any extra money in the bank. And, and also this concept that they think, well, maybe I'll never retire. That's so weird, too. That is weird, especially when you get to 65, 70, and you still have to work. Uh, it's it, it's not going to be a spot that, that I think a lot of people want to be in. But it jives with a lot of the, the trends from Gen Z, whether it's the way they they won't want to live or they're buying homes uh, or renting. Uh, all of it jives. And that's something right. that Gen Z's got to got to deal with. All right, Marie Osborne, thank you very much.
Thank you. All right, we're talking to Mike Rogers next. Lots of of consternation in the U.S. Senate. We'll talk to him about it next on JR Afternoon. Now, look, I am dubious of polling, and I think we've all kind of been jaded in that regard. And I, I truthfully, truthfully believe that there are pollsters out there that do it right. And there are pollsters out there that you can look at over the long term and say, you know what? Your track record's pretty good. You're never going to bat a thousand. But the numbers are there. Now, I, again, I look at all polls with kind of a, a crooked eye because, ah, geez, oh, Pete's, it's very difficult to really gauge the, the, the feeling of an entire country based on a thousand people, 1,200 people, 500 people. But what is interesting is this new New York Times poll, which shows that Donald Trump is le- leading in five of six swing, swing states, including Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, and Michigan. All five of those states went to Joe Biden in 2020. The fact that Donald Trump is overtaking Joe Biden in a number of really important states tells me a couple of things. It tells me that I, whether or not people believe these cases that have stacked up against Donald Trump are legit or not, it tells me that they don't have faith in Joe Biden. It tells me that for whatever reason, whether it's age, competency, or policy, they do not align with Joe Biden anymore, potentially. And in order for Donald Trump to have a lead in these states, that means that some of those people who voted for Joe Biden are now flipping to Donald Trump. Now, here's the other issue. And Brian Morton and I were having this discussion before the show today. Those people and and those people that voted for Joe Biden in 2020, at least in some segments, may be turning their back on him in 2024. We've seen the Arab population claiming, led by Rashid Tlaib, claiming that because Joe Biden isn't calling for a ceasefire in Israel and Gaza, that they will remember in 2024 and not cast their votes for him. Or the younger voters who are so mad at Joe Biden for giving the green light to a pipeline in Alaska that will not vote for Joe Biden now. And those who don't vote for Joe Biden, those are votes for Donald Trump. They're votes for Donald Trump by proxy. And so I think it's very important for the Republicans to just ride this wave. No more nonsense in the House. No more nonsense in the Senate. It's time to get to work. And from a Democrat's perspective, they got to figure it out. Because if Joe Biden isn't the guy, if he's not going to be able to want to get to get him over the finish line, well, not only are you going to have to make that admission that he's not the guy, which I think puts his last year in office in a in a really underwhelming spot. But then you have to find somebody to run in place of him. You have to give them the resources. And and chances are you'll you'll be in a primary situation. So and time is of the essence as we are now essentially a year 
uh, inside this election. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. 800-859-0957, 800-859-0WJR. Mike Rogers is there. Uh, Mike Rogers joins us running for U.S. Senate, of course, uh, former chair of the House Intelligence Committee on Capitol Hill. Uh, Mike, good to have you. It's great to be here. Thanks, Chris, for having me. You, you know, I, one of the issues that I, I, for some reason, just can't quite get over is the situation in the Senate now with with Senator Tommy Tuberville. And there are a number of important military positions that are being held up because uh, the the good senator from Alabama um, isn't approving these 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 appointees because Joe Biden's decision to allow uh, the the funding of people to cross borders and seek abortions in other states. Um, This has to be a very delicate situation that you got to deal with. In the Senate, but we've seen senators uh, voice their displeasure in Tommy Tuberville's approach to this. How do you look at it? Well, I, listen, we have uh, Chinese warships steamed into the Mediterranean to kind of counter U.S. two two uh, carrier fleets. There, we have uh, obviously the war against Hamas uh, with Israel. We have uh, Iran's hot spots with all of the proxies that they support that are attacking U.S. forces, uh, China rattling its cage, joint exercises with the Russian and the Chinese and the Arctic. Listen, I, I think it's time. He's made his point. It's time to move on. Give the military what they need. You know, you're ceding control to the civilians in the in the Pentagon. I just never think that's a great idea. You know, you, you talked about what's happening overseas. There was a report today that 45 U.S. service members have been uh, uh, injured in attacks uh, in Iraq and Syria, uh, uh, reportedly at the hands of Iran. What, what do you make of that? And, and is this becoming a situation? Uh, again, it it just feels like this is escalating now on, on U.S. troops that are being stationed abroad. Uh, well, it's absolutely escalating. And Again, this is Iran playing the same game that we've watched them play before, and they're using these proxies to attack the United States. They're also behind the disinformation campaign uh, that is p- part and parcel, I think, of you see of, of college kids you know, running around campus saying they support Hamas. Uh, I mean, it, this, this is a part of a bigger problem, and they are loving the chaos that you're seeing happen uh, around the country, including, you know, the, the people attacking the White House, you know, grabbing the fences and trying to climb the fences at the White House. I mean, all of this uh, is a perception that America is in a in a bad place. And so guess what? China loves it. Russia loves it. Russia has an interest in Syria. So they're helping with this mess. Uh, China loves to see any chaos that can happen here uh, because it helps and, and furthers their national security interests. Uh, and all for a terrorist group that has brutally slaughtered 1,400 people. I mean, this is a time for clarity, not confusion, Chris. Uh, you know, obviously, is on your quest here for, for U.S. Senate, uh, the seat being vacated by Debbie Stabenow, um, I, I imagine you've talked to a lot of people around the state, and certainly th- that'll continue over the next year. But um, what are you hearing from people, N- not only on, on this the situation unfolding in in Israel and in Gaza, but are, are, 
in times like this, are you seeing that people are gravitating more towards these international issues than maybe issues pertaining to the economy or education? Do their do their perceptions on what's happening change? I think it depends on the day and what's in the news about the international front. Mm-hmm. I think people are getting nervous. And what people are starting to understand, and the reason Donald Trump is up by five points in Michigan is when you compare those policies with what you see today, which looks like chaos, uncertainty, appeasement, they know something's wrong, and it's going in the wrong direction, and we are definitely on the wrong track. I hear that a lot. And this is from, you know, Democrats and independents and Republicans. And so you see this shift, I think, of people saying, hey, this stuff isn't working. And and Biden and his congressional allies have put us in a pickle. You know, there's a thing called engagement. You want to be engaged in the world. Yep. You don't want to be entangled in the world. Sure. And when you when you take away our ability to be self-sustaining when it comes to energy, we have to count on Venezuela and Iran and Saudi Arabia. Guess what? You get entangled in the world. Uh, and so, and, and by yeah. the way, that also has caused you to pay more for your sure. groceries at home. <laughs> no doubt and about so, it. Yeah. No I doubt mean, about it. Just, no good way to look at yeah. it, and so people are starting to come around to that. Uh, Mike Rogers, thank you, uh, as always, for your time. i got to take a break. More next on JR Afternoon. All right, I want to try to squeeze in a call here before we get to this UAW conversation because I haven't, we haven't talked very much today. Let's go to Diane in Bald Lake. Hi, Diane. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Um, I'm just calling to make a comment. I was listening to you earlier and um, discussing the – the recent poll, how Trump is leading Biden in these five uh, you know, swing states. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I want to say, first of all, I consider myself an independent. I've always felt like I was more of a moderate conservative. Mm-hmm. Since Donald Trump's been in office and I did vote for him the first time, um, I've kind of switched my you know, allegiance to more of an independent. So okay. I, I'm open to anybody. Sure. So that being a given, I'm, I'm coming from kind of trying to be more of a neutral view on this. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the comment that you had made about the voters who are leaving Biden based on what's been going on in the world right now in, in the United States uh, would by proxy be voting for um, Trump instead. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's necessarily a direct line there. I think people like myself who don't like either candidate, honestly, uh, may opt out of not voting at all or voting for a third party like RFK. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's fair. Um, but what I will tell you is of the 74 plus million people that voted for Donald Trump in 2020, let's let me let's chop off 10 million. All right. And those are people maybe like you that are independents and uh, and are and are willing to 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 leave him or uh, those that that potentially uh, are perturbed by the mounting legal issues that he's dealing with. Let's say all of that exists and say, just say 10 million people are out the door. You know, Joe Biden had 81 million votes. How many of those people are going to be voting for Joe Biden or or by proxy, if they don't vote for Joe Biden, how what, what are the, the numbers there? And if you have people that aren't participating, if you if you just say, look, if, if the Arab community says, we're not voting for Donald Trump, we're just not going to vote. Well, that's a problem. Or you've got, you know, different segments of the population that could be upset for whatever reason. If they don't vote, if you don't participate, well, that could be a real issue. And for those that do participate, and like you mentioned, RFK, if you if you cast your vote for, for him, well, that's, a, again, one less vote going to Joe Biden. 
And I'm going on the assumption that a third party candidate isn't going to win, at least not this election cycle. Potentially somewhere down the road, I would love to get to a point where there's a legitimate chance a third party candidate would win, but I'm not sure we're there yet. So either way, I'm not sure the math works, but it's a fair point. Um, you know, the the union had won incredible numbers for the rank and file. Sean Fain with the UAW did a wonderful job. I mean, really a master class in bringing big time wins to the rank and file. And with those wins, we've seen non-union auto companies have to give a raise to their workers because they're afraid that A, the UAW is coming in or B, people will leave and go to work for one of the big three because of the 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 big time uptick in wages or COLA or end of tiers, whatever it is, it, big wins for the UAW. So now the union is the has the daunting task of trying to add to their union totals. In 1979, there was about 1.5 million UAW members in 2022, which is the, the most recent year of data. There's about 383,000. I'm not sure that they're ever going to be able to get to 1.5 million again, but are they going to be able to add to the union rank and file? Merrick Masters joins us. He's a a labor expert and a professor of business at Wayne State University, and he joins us. Uh, Merrick, good to have you back. Are we going to see the union increase membership? Thanks for having me. I think there's a possibility it will increase its membership. But really, for it to make a dent in the industry as a whole, it's going to have to increase by orders of magnitude, not by a few thousand here or there. It's going to have to organize whole companies, and that means a Toyota, Mm -hmm. a Tesla, a Honda, or a Hyundai. If it doesn't do that, then it's going to be forced into repeating the situation it's been in for quite some time in which the non-union companies essentially set the pattern in the industry. And except for this latest round of negotiations, the UAW has been forced to try to narrow that gap and have to reduce its wages accordingly. Well, I think Sean Fain said it uh, during one of his his addresses that the contracts that the UAW was able to secure, the tentative deals, were so good that non-union workers were, were getting a bump like we saw at Toyota. How difficult is it? And we've seen the union try to go down and, and, and garner those enough votes to unionize those workers. They've been unsuccessful, especially down south. How difficult is that really from a union perspective to go down to some of these plants, go down to some of these auto work, uh, companies and try to flip their workers? Well, there are all things, all sorts of things that employers can do and anti-union forces can do that are subtle and not so subtle to resist union organizing efforts. And one thing you can rest assured of is companies like Tesla and Toyota are savvy and they will aggressively fight any union organizing attempt. They will bring out the baggage of the union, including the scandal, as an argument against having a union. They will argue that the union is not worth the dues and that if you have the union, what will end up happening is what happened to the auto industry in the Detroit area in which it has been decimated over time. So therefore, there are lots of things that are challenging and trying to organize from the standpoint of just trying to make the case for the union. 
but also employers can apply a lot of pressure. They can really encourage their managers to, in a way, strong arm employees to say, this is not in your interest. You really don't want to do this. And there are a lot of things that can occur part of an undercurrent, a psychological undercurrent that takes effect in these organizing campaigns and makes it hard for, for unions to prevail. In terms of the, the the growth of the union, I mean, the decline has been real over the last, you know, 40 years or so. Is the status quo uh, an addition by subtraction, if you will? If they're able to keep the union at the level they're at now, is that going to be good enough, do you believe, for union brass? No, because I think what they're going to see is that they're going to lose some members in the auto industry because of the shift to electrification and because of other efficiencies in the production process that are going to require fewer workers. Mm. And therefore, particularly if the electrical vehicles don't sell as uh, they, they appear not to be selling at the levels that people had earlier anticipated, then the demand is going to fall off and you won't see growth in employment as you would have expected otherwise. Mm. All those things suggest that you're going to have fewer auto workers to organize unless you're successful in organizing those non-union companies. And that is a leap of faith to assume that's going to take place in the near future. Merrick Masters at Wayne State University, thank you for your time and insight as always. We appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Yep, Take we'll, care. Yep, day. you do the same. We'll talk again very soon. Got to take a break. We'll get to more of your calls, your texts coming up next uh, right here on JR Afternoon. All right, I want to squeeze August in here in Milford in real quick before we get to Steve Courtney and do some sports. What's up, August? Hey, Chris, good afternoon. Uh, great show as always. Thanks. When I think, thank you, my friend. And when I think of Joe Biden, I have one word, two words. Unfortunately, it's elder abuse. The man is not there. And it pains me to see that. It's not good. He's actually shaking hands to the air. He's falling down. And this is what we're showing in a very crucial, critical world that's not sure what it should do. It's not good. I mean, I know. Look, I I get it. And and maybe that's a reason why people are, are, are rethinking this or maybe who voted for him before won't vote for him again. I mean... I, I think it's very real. I, I do. I mean, he's 80 years old. Um, and, and Donald Trump, I mean, is what? In his late 70s, too. So it's not like he's 77. It's not like it's, again, Donald Trump isn't exhibiting the same signs that Joe Biden is now. But, I mean, the, these are, yes. I mean, there is a there is an element of truth to the fact that, you know, they are older. Joe Biden is is obviously I mean, something is is different. He's not even the same guy he was when he was, you know, running for president in in 2020. So, yeah, I, there there is something there. And maybe that is a reason why. But it could be other things, too. I mean, people may not people may not agree with. With his policy, people may not agree with Bidenomics or they may not agree with the way he's handling the situation in the Middle East or how he's treated China and Taiwan. I mean, all of all of that comes into play, too. So I'm not entirely sure what the situation is, but there is there does seem to be if you prescribe to these pollings and 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 believe them to at least a certain degree that there is some sort of swing happening. And I think that's a troubling spot for the Democrats to be in. 
All right, Steve Courtney joins us. It was a weekend of football. We were lionless, which was really quite sad. But I, you know, Steve, I at least thought about to the Monday night game, and and it made me feel a little better. <laughs> yeah, Chris. I mean, you got to do what you got to do, but uh, theoretically, uh, it was the second consecutive Sunday uh, without Lions football. Of course, uh, all that changes uh, next Sunday afternoon, four oh five start. Uh, with the Honolulu Blue and Silver at 6-2 and two in uh, Los Angeles to take on those Chargers. Meanwhile, let me just do this. Uh, Chris, our chat brought to you by the hardworking men and women at Bill Brown Forward. Forward down the field, the W's are stacking up. And how about those winged wheelers? Uh, my good friend Matt Garko and his team are stacking wins each day. Drive with the champions at Bill Brown Ford. Shop their True View inventory at BillBrownFord.com today. It was an emotional day, Christopher, on the banks of the Red Cedar this past Saturday. It was senior day. Yeah, it really was. Um, uh, Close to 30 uh, seniors wearing the green and white for the final time. And, uh, you know, a lot has been made about what a difficult season it has been. As a matter of fact, we chatted about it at length with Magnum T.I. Tom Izzo uh, in this morning's episode of JR Morning. And it has been difficult. Uh, good for Harlan Barnett. Uh, you could tell uh, the interim head coach of your Michigan State Spartans absolutely elated with that 20-17 to win over the visiting Nebraska Cornhuskers. The six-game losing streak is now just a distant memory. Uh, Caton Hauser threw an 11-yard touchdown pass to Christian Fitzpatrick in the second quarter. Sam Levitt added a 25-yard scoring throw to Montori Foster early in the fourth. And Jonathan Kim... Boy, I'll tell you what, could be the MVP of this Spartan season, connected on two field goals. So uh, there you have it. And I, I thought defensive coordinator Scotty Hazelton uh, dialed up a perfect game. Uh, seven sacks for the Spartan defense, forcing three turnovers along the way. And as a reward for that win, Chris, uh, the Spartans will be in Columbus to take on <laughs> the Ohio State Buckeyes, 7.30 on Saturday night. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough a tough hill to climb. But, you know, going back to Harlan, I mean, this is a Spartan through and through. It's a guy who Indeed. played college football here, came back to coach, coached under Mark D'Antonio, coached under Mel Tucker. I mean, this is a guy who bleeds green and white. This is a true Spartan. And and no, this has not been the season that, that he would have wanted. But for him to get a win as a head coach at Michigan State, it, it had to feel good. You, you had to be happy for Harlan. Well, and here's the thing. Uh, he said uh, from the get-go uh, when he took over for what's-his-face um, that, yeah, he always had aspirations of being a head coach at the collegiate level, uh, certainly not under the circumstances uh, that it turned out to be. But that being said, uh, I know for a fact uh, that this Spartan team uh, just respects the hell out of him. And, uh, you know, a play here, a play there along this six-game losing streak, it would have been a different deal. Um, but they get the W, so there you go. Meanwhile, uh, in Ann Arbor, uh, number two Michigan, absolutely no troubles uh, with Purdue, forty-one to thirteen, the final there. Uh, and a lot has been made, Chris, for all the right reasons that uh, the Wolverines really haven't played anybody. Well, that all changes uh, come Saturday, uh, as it'll be the uh, Wolverines going to State College to take on. Now number 11, Penn State, uh, they're 8-1, and 5-1 and one in conference play. 
uh, Penn State coming off a 51-15 thrashing of a pretty good Maryland club. So mm-hmm. uh, having been uh, to that venue uh, there in Pennsylvania, I'm sure there's going to be a whiteout or something else going on. Uh, it is a pretty crazy place to play. By the way, let me just share this with you, Chris. It is somewhat of a developing story. The NCAA has joined Central Michigan in investigating, well, Connor Stallions, uh, the uh, former Michigan Allegedly. I'm I'm getting to that. Uh, (laughs) Easy now. Easy now. Uh, But definitely Connor Stallions. He resigned. Or he was fired last Friday. Uh, you know, usually if you're given the option, you're going to take the resignation route. But anyway, Athletic Director Amy Folan, uh, in a statement to ESPN, confirming that Central Michigan continues its review of the matter in cooperation uh, with the NCAA. Uh, the man in the images that we've all seen wore the same attire as Central Michigan's coaches and other sideline personnel, as well as sunglasses for the night game. So, you know, <laughs> unbelievable. It is really, it really is unbelievable. But, but this Michigan, you know, you, you hear teams all the time. Well, we don't let the outside noise impact what we're doing inside uh, X uh, facility, whatever it is. It, it's pretty true for this team. This is a team where we're going to see how much this outside noise is influencing this team, good or bad. But, but this gauntlet they got coming up, this is their season. You got Penn State, you got Maryland, and and you've got Ohio State at home to round out the season. It will truly see how well they're able to to silence the noise from the outside. And uh, staying with what you just discussed, uh, the Heisman Trophy hopeful J.J. McCarthy having a year, yeah. twenty four of thirty seven, season high three hundred thirty five yards in the pummeling of Purdue. Uh, he said just that. All that outside noise is just noise. Uh, so you're right. We will see. Uh, if they're able to block it yeah. out for what many are considering uh, the big showdown, maybe the first one of the year no for doubt. the Wolverines. Steve Courtney, thank you very much. Got to run. Mitch Allman, the crew, coming in next here on WJR.